All right. If you're a guest with us, we're glad you're here. As Dan mentioned, we have books to give away. If you were particularly blessed by the singing and you feel like you would like to sing at home but don't have a hymnal, I have an extra one. It was sitting on, it was sitting on my desk. It's from Emmanuel Baptist Church. That's just a reminder to us. There was actually a uh, group of people who used to meet in this congregation. Murray was one of them. This, these were their hymnals. Murray, you might have used this hymnal. So uh, if you would like a hymnal, to have at your house so that you could use it for family devotions or personal devotions. Uh, you don't have to sing well. You just have to be willing to use it to sing. I have several in my study, and if you come by early in the morning, you will hear a loud noise in there. Uh, this hymnal can be yours. If you don't want it, that's fine. All right, Tim, here we go. Uh, Tim, Mar- there you go. That's the real value of what I just gave you. All right, now we got a few books that we're giving away. Uh, Dan, make a note. We need to buy me a new copy of this for one of the interns. I'm giving away my copy uh, because I realized I didn't buy anything specific for this Sunday Night Theology, but it's a devotional by Alec Mater on the book of Isaiah. So if, in particular, you think that you would be helped by reading a devotional study of the entire book of Isaiah, and you commit to read it over the next 40 days, Leslie, this can be yours. All right, Leslie. All right, I won't, I won't, I'll throw it at Tim for you. All right, going back to past Sunday night theologies, I have a copy of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read this book, excellent book. This copy's your, all right, Mel Krikski, here we go. All right, because we'll be discussing uh, the fathers a little bit this evening. Uh, If you've never read Augustine, or Augustine in particular, his book, The Confessions, and you're willing to read The Confessions uh, this year, I'd highly recommend this. This will probably be one of the most important books that you ever read. It's very easy to read. The back end's a little confusing, but the first part, Dave Fugay, here we go. Tim, you're taking it to Dave. All right, and then when we just think of uh, life in general, uh, thinking maybe just some of my counseling uh, recently, uh, excellent book, uh, When Pain is Real and God Seems Silent, Finding Hope in the Psalms. Whether you are that person or you want to help that person, but you feel like you would be blessed by a short meditation on suffering and in the Psalms by Ligon Duncan, this can be yours. All right, Renee. Oh, well, we're going to give it to our guest here on the front row. There you go. Thanks for nothing, Stephen. So, <laughs> all right. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. I want to preface our time together uh, this evening by saying nothing, and I mean, oh, we have handouts. If you do not have a handout, they're going to be coming by uh, in just a moment. If you get missed, just let them know. You're not going to need that till later, so you could probably use the backside for, uh, for notes. Nothing, and I mean nothing, of the material that I'm presenting tonight is original to me. Uh, what I originally thought that I might try to accomplish in this talk uh, and what I'm actually going to do tonight are widely different. As I read and as I studied as I spent time uh, in uh, Isaiah, uh, I think what I'm now convinced of doing is presenting and organizing the material from Isaiah 40 through 66, as I've come to understand it, through the help of other interpreters, not least among them being Alec Mater and his Isaiah commentaries. He has two, one longer, one shorter. Uh, Jim Hamilton's notes from my Messiah in the Old Testament class during my THM days. Uh, N.T. Wright, 
uh, and a few other sources. I'm very happy to point you in the trajectory of all of those sources, uh, but they have helped me organize the material that I'm going to give to you. So I'm happy to point you there because I have no intention to publish uh, what we're doing tonight. I'm trying to help you understand uh, the last 26 chapters of the book of Isaiah. So with that said, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 39. I'm going to ask you to keep it, your Bibles out and open throughout our entire time, and we're going to pray and ask the Lord to help us uh, as we dive into our study this evening. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful to be able to sing with the people of God, to have the privilege to be able to give out good Christian resources and to read them in our own language. Perhaps that is something uh, for many of us that we have not thought to give you thanks for recently, uh, giving you praise uh, for the fact that we have so many resources uh, available to us in the English language. Uh, We know that with that privilege and opportunities like this comes a great responsibility, not only to personally grow in our own faith with Christ, but also to be able to reproduce this in the lives of other people so that we might encourage them as we all look forward to the eternal day of God that is drawing near. I thank you for each of the men and women who've gathered here this evening. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that tonight that they would be encouraged, that you would help them and all of us come to a better understanding of the book of Isaiah. Father, I pray for any, perhaps, who are present this evening who have not yet trusted Christ. May they hear the gospel in the prophet Isaiah, and may they trust in the Savior, Jesus our Lord. And we ask all of this in his great name. Amen. As far as I can tell, it was during uh, my history of interpretation seminar during my PhD days with Dr. Jonathan Pennington that I first learned that many of the church fathers called Isaiah a fifth gospel. While I was reading Martin Hangel's The Four Gospels and one, The One Gospel of Jesus Christ, though I could not find that page to save my life this week. I looked and looked and looked. But as we look to Isaiah, it's going to be easy to see why they call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Immediately, when you begin to think of scriptural passages that point to a coming king, many of us start to turn our attention to passages like Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11. Or when you think of a royal figure who will suffer to bring about God's long-planned redemption, many of you turn your attention to Isaiah 40 through 55. And specifically, if I asked you to turn to one place, you would turn to Isaiah chapter 53. When we reflect on the New Testament celebrating the strange victory of God of this anointed one who overcomes the cosmic forces of evil and brings about a new heavens and a new earth, other than the end of the book of Revelation... Many of us will turn to the end of the book of Isaiah, but it's that middle section where we're going to turn our attention now that many interpreters point to as kind of a crucial section of Isaiah, turning point. So what's the passage about? It addresses the people of Israel in Babylonian exile about which Deuteronomy had earlier warned them and the prophet Isaiah has warned them about specifically in this chapter. So let's read Isaiah 39. We're going to be doing a lot of Bible reading tonight. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show, him, uh, show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? 
Hezekiah said, they have come from, to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come to you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. What a short-sighted comment. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, taking most of the Judean people captive into exile, from which they thought that they would never return. The prophets had insisted that this exile was not merely a political disaster, though it was certainly that. It was a divine punishment, a covenant retribution, which was bound to follow Israel's long-running idolatry and sin. If you want to just get a sense of that, go read the book of Judges. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and there's this pattern of sinfulness that continues to exist among the people in the Old Testament. But the worst thing of all is that Israel's God, Yahweh, himself had abandoned his people. He had left the temple to its own fate. We see that in the book of Ezekiel. So one of the main frames of this section is the great promise of Yahweh's return. We see it in chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. If you've been with us in recent weeks, we've had many people preaching from this. Isaiah says, right after the text we just read, after the promise of destruction, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We see that there is this promise of comfort immediately after a promise of destruction, and that theme returns later in Isaiah in this very same section that we're giving our attention to right now. Just flip over a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 50, verse, uh, verse 52, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 7, please. And you'll see a very similar set of promises here. Just note, if you're the type of person who likes to read, uh, write in your Bible, Beside Isaiah 52, 7, you could probably write Isaiah 40, verse 9. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, 
who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, your waste places of, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. The prophet points us to a voice calling out a message of comfort to Zion, saying it's over. No more punishment, no more warfare, there's peace, there's comfort, there's hope. He's coming back to the city that he has forsaken. Then there follows to us this strange combination of events where Israel's God is gentle like a shepherd, taking care of lambs even though he's promised destruction, and he's majestic as one who holds the whole of creation in the palm of his hand. The passage looks ahead to, the, uh, to Isaiah 52, which we just read, where Israel's watchmen in Zion are looking out and they're shouting because they see Zion returning to the city. And at this time, the promise is coupled with commands about the Jews themselves returning to Babylon and going to actually rebuild the temple that has been destroyed. These two passages, Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52, point us to the conclusion of this entire section, which is Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55. The covenant is going to be renewed, and creation itself will be renewed. We see that in chapter 54. We see that in chapter 55. When God does for Israel what he's going to do for Israel, then the nations are going to share in this blessing. It's no longer going to be confined to a particular geographical area. It's no longer going to be confined to one specific people and a unique genealogy, but it's going to bless all of the nations and the human blessing is the means by which God, the creator, who made people in his image and has asked them to be stewards of that, will renew the whole of creation itself. There's this expression of a glorious, vivid, hope-filled poetry all throughout Isaiah in this section. The heart of the whole passage points us to this servant that we're talking about this evening. All right, now flip over to chapter 42 of Isaiah. Part of the reason I'm having you read this is I'm hopeful that it'll help us piece some of this together. So he's promised destruction. He's promised right after destruction hope. At the end of that section, he's promising a renewal of hope, a renewal of the covenant, a renewal of a blessing to the nations. Now he tells us about the person who's going to bring about this blessing in Isaiah 42, verses one through nine. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. 
I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, this is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Careful readers immediately begin to wonder, who is this servant? And why is Isaiah introducing us to him now here in his prophecy? Destruction, then hope, at the end, hope and covenant renewal. Why, sandwiched right here in the middle, does he introduce us to this enigmatic figure? He appears like a royal figure, making us think of chapters 9 and 11. We immediately begin to wonder, is he Israel himself? In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. As the picture continues to develop for us in Isaiah 49 and 50, after we see that there are more promises and more terrifying warnings for the people, we see that God is going to do something for them through this servant that they cannot do for themselves. Look over in Isaiah 49. Verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with me and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now look over in chapter 50. Another picture of this ser- same servant. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. 
I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Simultaneously, we're introduced to another of Yahweh's characters. He's unfolding this picture of us, of this servant who's come to bring about this restoration, who's come to bring about this deliverance, who's come to bring about this covenant renewal, who's come to bring about this restoration of the people. Only just two chapters later does he tell us how the Lord reveals himself, Yahweh's arm in Isaiah 52, verse 10, so that he has the personal power to do the job. But in chapter 53, to our astonishment, what we have begun to see, and so many of us are familiar with, is that Yahweh's arm, this servant, is also the very same one who suffers. He is the one who is crushed for our salvation, our atonement. And he begins to bring together all of these pictures that he's been developing for us. It's the announcement that Yahweh is coming back to heal his people, gentle like a shepherd, but majestic over the world, is fulfilled in the servant himself and his subsequent vindication. We see this in Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 13, but we'll read one section in particular, Isaiah 53, verses four through six. We see what this servant does for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Putting together the pieces for us a little bit here. There's a turning point, Isaiah 39. Judgment is promised then immediately comfort is offered to the people. Then the Lord develops this picture of this servant who's going to come and bring the comfort. And as he develops this picture, he tells us that this servant is mighty, he's majestic, he's glorious, and then right in the middle of it, he tells us that this servant who is mighty, majestic, glorious, the arm of the Lord is the very one who suffers for his people. And it is only by his suffering that the covenant can be renewed and restoration can actually happen in chapter 54 and chapter 55. With all of that picture laid out for us, it does not take much to imagine why the early Christians were eager to point back to the book of Isaiah and say that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. They didn't just have one verse that they were pointing to. 
They had entire sections of Isaiah's prophecy, not to mention all of the rest of the Old Testament where we see this theme of the Messiah being developed from the book of Genesis all the way to the, uh, through the end of the book of Malachi. But there's this beautiful, unique picture in the book of Isaiah where it is all brought together in a poetic way to help the people see that this mighty one is the one who suffers and it is specifically his suffering for us on the cross that we now know that gives them hope. So they would point back to this passage and call it the fifth gospel. And that is what brings this elongated, long exile of the people to an end. This is the means by which the people would be able to declare hope to the entire world. The more that we get to know Isaiah 40 through 55, the more we understand how the very first followers of Jesus understood the gospel. And they're in the verses that I told you to write beside each other earlier. Verses that Paul picks up in the book of Romans, Isaiah 40 verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Good news is coming. And then Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In the midst of this devastating bad news, there is this wonderful good news that comes, and that is what they are to declare to the people. The more we relish in this broad sweep of what Isaiah has done, the more dimensions of our own salvation we begin to see more deeply. The more that we pray through it and pay attention to it, the more that we begin to understand what it meant for God, who is high and lifted up, to condescend and be humbled low for us. Now at this point, I'm aware that many of you are probably more familiar with a lot of that, just like I was as I began my study of Isaiah. I was pretty familiar up to this point with the four servant songs in Isaiah's uh, gospel. I was pretty familiar with them and saw them developed in chapter 40 and 49 and chapter 50 and 53. But I wonder if you are equally familiar with the four spirit songs that are in Isaiah as well. Or better, as Alec Mater puts it in his commentary, the four songs of the spirit in Isaiah 56 through 66 that identify the spirit-anointed Savior who will also come to be identified with the Christ. It was not until I began to read Alec Mater's commentary in Isaiah 56 through 66 in preparation for our time together this evening that I saw that for the first time. I knew there were servant songs, but I did not know how many. I assumed there were four, and Alec helped me see that there are actually eight, four in 38 through 55, and four more in 56 through 66. He begins to develop this thing and help, uh, this theme and helps us see that though many Christians stop counting in 53, we should continue to count as we turn the corner in Isaiah 56. Just one quick example for us. Turn over to Isaiah 61. It's an obvious text where we begin to see themes of this servant developed only in a different way than we see them developed in 38 through 55. Look in 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
because the Lord has anointed me. That same type of language that we saw of the suffering servant. To bring good news to the poor. That's what he's come to do, the servant. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. All of this sounds a lot like Jesus. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, firmly rooted, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall be built up, the, they shall build up the ancient ruins, referring to the temple and its imagery. They shall raise up the former devastations, They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Now drop down to verse eight. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the offspring that the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all of the nations. He begins to turn the corner and help us see that this spirit-anointed one is the one who is the same messianic deliverer that is spoken of in Isaiah 38 through 55. It wasn't until I began to prepare for this evening that I began to see that those four songs in chapter 59 and 60 and 61 and 63 connect to the previous ones and that they help us see something unique about the servant. So it's after reading Mater, it's hard to miss that these four songs balance with the previous four. Now, this is where your handout will come in handy. I want you to turn to it if you have one. If you don't have one, Dan, where are they? you don't have one, they're in the back. You can go grab one. And it might be also on the screen. Perfect. Excellent. So what I'm going to do now is nothing unique to me. I'm going to try to work with you a little bit in Mater's commentary, the prophecy of Isaiah, and help you see how he develops these themes. So you have the, the famous four songs of, of, the sermon, of the servant earlier in Isaiah's uh, prophecy for us. We see them in chapter 40, 49, 50, and 53. And now he tells us of these next four songs in 59, 61, or 60, 61, and 63. He puts at the beginning and the end there on the handout, the anointed servant. And then notice if you just drop down how there's this chiastic stru- uh, structure for Mater. The promise of salvation and judgment culminating in a spirit-endowed covenant mediator, 59, 15 through 21. And then look at the other far extreme of the handout. The promise of judgment and salvation culminating in the end of God's enemies in 63, 1 through 6. And then in the middle here, an anointed one comes proclaiming salvation and justice. And then 
in 61, 10 through 62, 7, the work of salvation and judgment. And then you drop down to the bottom part. The nations begin to gather from all over the world in chapter 60, verses 1 through 22, because of this spirit-anointed servant. The Lord's people are priests who have received joy, not just covenant cursing in 61, 5 through 9. And God's people are gathered in in security. They're no longer scattered in exile in 62, 8 through 12. This charge just an abbreviation of what you can find in his commentary, but that chiastic stru- structure for Mater is very important. Then Mater helps us see that the individual of Isaiah 61, verse 1, like the servant, is endowed with the Spirit. If you look back in Isaiah 42, verse 1, we begin to see this theme developed. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Flip over to chapter 59, verse 21. This is where it just simply won't do to rattle all verses. The only way to help you is actually point you all over the Bible and help you see the connections because it can be hard to to find them if I'm just saying them out loud. 59, verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Then flip over to chapter 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This servant is endowed with this same spirit and both have the priority of declaring the ministry of the word, a message of good news, a message of hope, a message of deliverance, a message of salvation. Specifically, they are both tasked to bring a word of comfort. We see that in chapter 50, verse 4, and chapter 61 that we just read. In addition, the four songs of the anointed one have the same pattern as the servant songs earlier in Mater's understanding of Isaiah. In each case, the first and the fourth song are reports, and the second and third songs are testimonies. In each case, you can just keep looking at the handout here or at the screen above. In each case, the first song is about status and task. The second is about ministry and objective. The third about personal commitment. And the fourth about the completion of the work that has been undertaken by the servant. In each case, the anonymity of the individual in the third song is the same. Only in the context of the whole is the place of the third song fully recognized. Even the unobtrusiveness of the individual's entrance on the scene in the first song in each series is the same. We find ourselves suddenly thinking in servant or anointed one terms. The language is picked up in both sections of Isaiah's uh, structure here. Each servant was followed by what he calls a tailpiece appropriate to the song. Here, the first of three songs are followed by oracles of the glory of Zion the particular sort of confirmation of the anointed one's task. 
and messages suited to the chapters of 56 through 66, where the wonder of the coming Zion begins to shape the storyline of Isaiah's prophecy. It could even be that at the very end of Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 63, verse 7, through chapter 66, verse 24, that there's this final song bringing about this grand climax heralding for us Zion's glorious return. And all matching the king in chapters 1 through 37, the servant in chapters 38 through 55, and the anointed conqueror who is the messianic one in 56 through 66. The first two songs are linked by the theme of the spirit and word, the second and third and fourth by vengeance, salvation and favor, and this in turn integrates them into an entire section for Mater. Then, now let's turn over to chapter 59. 59, verses 15 through 20, the Lord himself dons garments appropriate to the task of salvation. Notice what happens in verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then... His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment, so that they... Fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will, cover, he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. The Lord puts on these garments, the anointed one appears, endowed with the spirit and word, and his coming dates the advent of the day of favor and now the vengeance that God is going to bring. And it is on him that the Lord puts these garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness in 6110 so that he might make people righteous and make righteousness sprout for the nations to the ends of the earth. And then finally, the wearer of the robes announces the completion of of this redemption in 63 verses 1 through 6. So what we begin to see if we just take a step back and look at Mater's structure here is that Isaiah is really just like a bottomless pit of biblical theology. He's going back and forth across this section, pointing us all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, helping us see that the one who's going to bring redemption is the servant, that the servant is anointed with God's spirit it rests upon him. He's not like those who've come before where the spirit comes and leaves them, but the spirit rests upon him. And we see that same image picked up in the gospels with the spirit descending upon Jesus. And then Jesus goes out in Matthew chapter four and in Luke chapter four in the power of the spirit. And then ultimately that servant, Jesus, sends his spirit to his people. And that is how he seals them with his redemption, the promised indwelling spirit. So Isaiah becomes this deep pool of biblical theology that really just shoots us everywhere across both Old and New Testament alike. Even more specifically, 
reading these four songs in conjunction with the servant's work in Isaiah 38 through 55 help explain how it's possible for the one who we know as the suffering servant to have his work applied to us. If he's going to do this work, how will that work be meaningful for us? It's not simply by divine fiat that his suffering becomes our glory. Rather, as Isaiah 56 through 66 explains, it is by the spirit that the servant or this son shares his glory with us as people. Brothers and sisters, that is the glorious truth of the gospel. Mater's observations help us read Isaiah, and thankfully, they also help us understand the salvation that Isaiah is pointing to. And it is with this glorious vision before us in Isaiah that we continue to give ourselves to this book and this gospel. To think about the book and this gracious salvation, what I'd like to do in kind of the remainder of our time is develop a little bit of the structure of Isaiah and then trace out some theological themes and then I'll give, make sure that there's time for questions. The book of Isaiah, as many of you know, consists of how many chapters? Somebody say it out. 66. Now, how many books of the Bible are there? All right. And so for many people, what they see is they'll say, okay, there are 39 chapters related to the first part of Isaiah, and there are 27 related to the second part of Isaiah. And then there's this wonderful fullness and connection between how many chapters there are in Isaiah and how many books there are in the Bible. And the simplicity of that is really wonderful and completely unhelpful and useless to everybody here in this room. What Mater helps us see is a more helpful way to break down the book of Isaiah and not just simply say, okay, 39 chapters, that matches the Old Testament, 27, that matches the New Testament. That preaches really well, but it doesn't help anybody understand Isaiah. So as we turn to Mater, he helps us see that Isaiah's message comes to life when we begin to look at his structure just a little bit differently. Mater has a three-part theological reading of Isaiah, in his commentary, it's technical, but it's not too technical, so I'd encourage you to grab a copy of it, or what you could do is you could go get the Tyndale version, which is a slightly more nuanced, only slightly shorter version of the same commentary. In his book, what he does is he divides Isaiah not into two halves, but into three parts, and in those three parts, he gives these headlines. The book of the king, chapters 1 through 37, And in those chapters, he helps us see that there's a problem that needs to be diagnosed in Judah, that there's going to be the triumph of grace, and we think of the glorious vision beginning in Isaiah chapter 6 that moves us through about chapter 12, that there is this universal kingdom that will come in chapters 13 through 27, and then there is this one who rules and reigns over all of history from chapters 28 through 37. Then he turns our attention to the book of the servant. So the book of the king, 1 through 37, the book of the servant, 38 through 55. And in the book of the servant, we see that there is this fatal choice of Hezekiah. Hezekiah makes a bad decision, and as a result of that, there's going to be judgment. But in the midst of that pronouncement of judgment, there is consolation promised to the world. There is redemption that is brought to Israel. There is a great deliverance that will come. And that a greater deliverance that will come through the servant whom we now know as the Christ. And then he breaks it into the third section, which is the book of the anointed conqueror, verses 56 through 66. 
the ideal and the actual, the needs and the sins of the Lord's people, the coming of the anointed conqueror in chapters 59 through 63, and the steps to the new heavens and the new earth and that glorious vision at the end of Isaiah's prophecy. Mater outlines it in a way that is completely theological, but it captures these themes for Isaiah and help us see king, servant, spirit-anointed deliverer. King, servant, spirit-anointed deliverer helps us understand the eight songs. Why is the structure necessary? Because it shapes the way that we read the book. Now, if you read Isaiah the way that I read Isaiah for the majority of my time as a Christian, then you've done one of a few things. You either A, read it in your Bible reading plan. It isn't completely disconnected from all of the other chapters. You take one chapter at a time. There's lots of destruction of Moab and other places. Somewhere along the line, you try to pay attention. You know that you read the chapter, and then you move on. Or you read the book of Isaiah. You kind of grin and bear it, but you know that there are some glorious promises coming. And you think of Christmas when you get to chapters 7, uh, seven 9, and 11. You think of Easter when you get to kind of Isaiah chapter 50. And then you think of the book of the Revelation, but you don't really want to talk about that because you know everyone has a lot of difficult conversations when they do. All right. Structure helps us see how to piece a book together and as, as Bible readers begin to take those chunks and not only read them in a manageable way, but to understand that there are themes that Isaiah is driving through them. So one of the ways that I'm going to recommend that you read Isaiah, though I know it's going to require quite a bit of discipline and just admonishment for you, and this is my, my plug for reading long sections of books together, is to try to read at times some of these sections one at a time. Read 1 through 37, Read 38 through 55, read 56 through 66, and know that you have a pass on forgetting all kinds of things as you do. But try to observe the themes that the prophet is developing for us. And I think Mater, when he breaks it down in this part, helps us sing, uh, see king, servant, spirit-anointed deliverer. King, servant, spirit-anointed deliverer. In this sense we begin to see that there's this beautiful picture when we read these long chunks together because there's a glorious change that takes place from the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy to the end of Isaiah's prophecy. And for those of you who might be more familiar with the book, think of how it starts when he speaks of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says this, how the faithful city has become a whore. A terrible picture. But by the end of the book, He anticipates her presentation as a bride in whom the Lord will take delight in 62 verses 4 through 5. Turn there with me now. Isaiah 64 verses 4 through 5. Terrible picture at the beginning, and then at the end we read this. You shall no more be termed forsaken... And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. She moves from the beginning of the book from harlotry 
to the end of the book, holiness. From whore to bride, to, from forsaken to beloved. And brothers and sisters, when we pay attention to that in Isaiah's prophecy, and we begin to think of our own personal redemption, we realize that that is our story as well. We went from a people who Paul tells us were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds to a people who are holy and blameless and above reproach by faith in Christ. The reading through the prophets can be difficult. I think that we have all perhaps been a little bit amazed as we read over these broad sections of Isaiah that certain themes begin to appear again and again. And it's worth noting them, I'm going to suggest, in the margins of your Bible to help you kind of string these themes together, or you can just take notes on the back of the handout that you have, because they help us understand how intense this marriage counseling is in Isaiah's prophecy as we move from harlotry to holiness. First, first theological theme, God as the sole and incomparable ruler of creation and history. We learn that he is the sole an incomparable ruler of creation and history. This thing becomes particularly prominent in the sections we've been studying tonight in chapter 40 and is highlighted in the following verses, in verses 40 through 48. But notice in particular what he says in chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Nobody's like God. Or Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord... And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. Or Isaiah 45, verse 21. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior and there is none beside me. To me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Second theological theme, God as the sole redeemer. In the last passage that we just read, we noticed that God is the one who is the ruler of creation, and as a result of that, he alone is the only one who can save. We see this in Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 54, verse 8. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now, these themes are important to see that in the midst of all of the devastation prophesied in Isaiah's gospel, he's constantly coming back to the fact that he is holy other, and this one who is holy other is bringing redemption to his people and showing compassion to them. God refers to himself repeatedly as the holy one, as the redeemer. Third theological theme, the servant. God's spirit will specially rest on the one who is the servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Fourth theological theme, conqueror. 
Just a few short chapters after Isaiah 53, we learn that the spirit-anointed one, uh, anointed one is going to ha- be the suffering servant. So we see those songs over and over again in Isaiah's prophecy. 59, verses 15 through 21. 61, verses 1 through 4. 62, verse 7. And 63, verses 1 through 6. And then the theme that we, haven't, we just alluded to a few moments ago as we see the development of the people throughout the entire prophecy of Isaiah, this idea of a new Jerusalem, the bride. With this servant conqueror in place, the final chapters of Isaiah focus especially on the new Jerusalem as the bride and as the representative of the new heavens and the new earth. Turn to Isaiah 62, verses 3 through 5. You shall be a crown of beauty in the land, in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And then the verses that we read just a few moments ago. We see this glorious vision that Isaiah paints for us. And to think back that this Holy One has stepped in to redeem and to save his people. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here tonight, the way to approach these chapters is to rejoice. And what God has done for us. Isaiah says that this is true of all of God's people, that he crowns us with splendor, not because of anything that we've done, not because we're intrinsically more worthy than other people, not because we were more numerous than the other nations, not because we're inherently good or because of intelligence or success or because we've been able to keep ourselves clean, but because he has done a great work for us through this servant whom we know as the Redeemer, Jesus, which helps us to see finally that we need to read all of Isaiah in light of the New Testament, to which we will now turn for just a few moments. If you're going to read Isaiah rightly, we have to read it in light of the New Testament's authoritative interpretation because the New Testament literally reverberates over and over again with allusions and echoes to the book of Isaiah. And he speaks about this great and glorious deliverance and how it's fulfilled in the person of Christ in five different ways. First, Jesus is the promised Messiah. Looking back to the Messiah promised in Isaiah 9 and 11, Paul says this in Romans chapter 15. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And he applies this picture to Jesus. Second, Jesus is the Holy One. Referring to chapter 6 of Isaiah, the Apostle John says this. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, it's important for us to catch this. John wants us to see who is the holy God that Isaiah saw on a throne high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filling the entire temple. According to John, that was Jesus. Third, Jesus is the promised redeemer. All four gospels, all four of them, quote from the opening words of Isaiah 40 to say that Jesus is God who has come to give salvific comfort to his people. So in Luke chapter three, John the Baptist, who has come to prepare the way of the Lord for the people, explains that his role in, in the words of Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths for him, and all mankind will see the salvation of God. Fourth, 
Jesus is the suffering servant. The New Testament authors knew that Jesus was the suffering servant. To explain Jesus' ministry, Matthew writes this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. And then finally, fifth, Jesus is conqueror. And the New Testament also shows Jesus is this conqueror, so we see this conqueror's song that we read that this promised one will repay each one according to their deeds in Isaiah 59, verse 18, is also the same one spoken of in Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And John helps us see that that is Jesus. The New Testament is full of pictures of Isaiah being fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That concludes our time this evening. And now open for time for questions. Are you mediating the questions? Excellent. Dave. Chapter 1, verse 21, and then chapter 2. I'm getting there. I want to make sure I give you the right end of the verse reference. Uh, 62, verses 4 through 5. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, a chiasm, we see these uh, in different places in the Bible where uh, what you have kind of moving from the outside in, you have this sandwich that is being developed that shows us a central point. An easy example uh, that we might point to is in the book of Genesis where we see that God comes to Adam and then he speaks to Eve and then he speaks to the serpent. Then he speaks to the serpent, then he speaks to Eve, then he speaks to Adam. And right at the center, his speaking to the servant is the central point. That's where we have that, that promise of the, the gospel, what we call the proto-euangelion early in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So what we see Mater doing is that same type of theme, working outside in in the four servant songs, as he's saying the, these themes of salvation and judgment sit at the beginning and the end of the spirit-anointed songs and then kind of drive us to this middle point where we're looking at the servant differently. So you have the promise of salvation and judgment culminating in the spirit-endowed covenant mediator, 59, the promise of judgment and salvation culminating in the end of God's enemies, and then in the middle this work and how it happens, the proclamation of salvation and that actual work taking place. That's, what, that's the important part of what takes place there. So if you want to imagine it, it's like in Philadelphia when I went downtown with Otavio. It's not, it's not just the meat, it's the bread. The bread matters, right? So you got you to look at the bread, but what's in the middle is accentuated because of the bread on the outside. So it's like a Philadelphia cheesesteak, if that helps anybody. And you can only go to John's Roast Pork or Octavio will come and tell you that you're doing it wrong. Right, Octavio? <laughs> okay.
and perhaps it was a complicated lecture that meant nothing to anyone. So. Yeah, actually, that's a really great question. That's a really great question. Um, okay, that's a really great question. Um, so maybe a few things. First, I think it's really normal for us to be intimidated by big books of the Bible like Isaiah, right? We come to it in 66 chapters. It's intimidating as a preacher. I see Ben O'Toole here, Joseph Randall's over here. I mean, thinking of preaching 66 chapters of Isaiah and how long that might take us and how to do that and bite off manageable chunks, that can be overwhelming and intimidating, not just for Christians sitting in the seats, but for preachers trying to figure out how do I break this down and how do I do it in a reasonable time frame so that I actually finish before I die. Uh, so as, as we think of that, maybe some, some ways to kind of tackle this would be study Bibles are really helpful not just for reading the comments at the bottom, but specifically for seeing structure. So if you think, okay, I don't have a lot of handouts like this. I don't have access to these commentaries. Some of these commentaries are $40, $50, $60 sometimes. You can get the ESV Study Bible. It's not the authoritative interpretation of everything, but you can look at the beginning of that and just see how do they break down the book of Isaiah and then try to tackle Isaiah by looking at those big chunks and say, okay, I'm gonna read that section in my devotional time this time. And then this section and this section, however many times they break it down. Second, when we come to God's word and we're reading Isaiah, we find it in which, uh, in which section of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we should always be asking ourselves, where will I see some of these themes developed again? And if you're like me and you like to write in your Bible, which is why I'm encouraging you to do so, Start making connections to the New Testament when you find them and write them there in the side of your Bible so that you now know, okay, this is where it gets picked up and you're gonna see the book of Isaiah picked up all the time when you're reading the Gospels. When you're reading the New Testament, you should be asking yourself, where have I seen this before? And then you kind of work backwards on those same uh, notations. You start writing them in the side of your Bible in, in the New Testament and you work yourself back into the Old Testament. And what you're going to see is that the scripture is constantly referring uh, us back and forth because from the beginning to the end of the Bible, there's one storyline, even though there's 66 books. God has come to save his people and he has done that through his anointed redeemer, Jesus Christ. So you can read from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 and make those connections. Third, uh, as, as we come to that, I'm just gonna encourage you to read sections of scripture a lot. Sometimes we think, and I know I'm prone to think this way, I gotta read through the Bible every year. Uh, but some of you are more disciplined than me in a different way that you will actually take one book of the Bible and study it for a period of time. And I would encourage you during that time to just read that book of the Bible a lot. And what you'll see as you read that book of the Bible a lot is that there are resonances back and forth across that book of the Bible. If you come to the Simeon Trust Workshop that we're gonna have for men or the Simeon Trust Workshop that we're gonna have for women, they're gonna teach you what they call the melodic line. And what you see is you begin to read across a book that those themes are developed, but you can really only see them as you read back and forth. So you, you think of, uh, for some of us, it's how we watch the movie The Sixth Sense or movies like that where at the end you now know what the rest of the movie was like and you immediately go back and you watch it and see what it was like. Or for some of us, that's what it's like when we read the Gospels, right? We know that Jesus 
raises from the dead. If I ruin that for anybody, I'm sorry, you know, but he's risen from the dead. And so as we're reading the gospels, even as we see that tension building, we see those themes developed. And so that's going to happen when you take a book like Isaiah or even smaller books like Ruth uh, or even smaller books like Philemon, and you just read them over and over again. And I just want to give you license to do that. That's not unspiritual. That's not necessarily unchristian. That's not necessarily uh, a waste of your time. That, that you can do that and in some sense become somebody who's more useful in reading that book and encouraging other people to, to do so. Um, and then finally, one of the things I would, I would say is Stand on the shoulders of other people when you have time to, to read good books. I know some of you uh, might think of yourself in the room as, as a slow reader. I'm a slow reader. Uh, Megan is a very fast reader. Uh, I get paid to read, uh, so I read a lot. Sometimes I read more than her. She tries to beat me, and often she does. Uh, but what, what we see is that you can take off manageable chunks of books by just giving yourself to them over time, and there's really like no defined list of books that you have to have accomplished or read before you get to glory. So you can go and take someone like Matera's commentary and say, you know what, I'm going to give myself to this and I'm just going to read it as I go. And if that takes me a year or two years, that's a fine use of your time. There, there's nothing wrong about that or necessarily unchristian. Probably what will happen is your tolerance for reading will grow and your ability to read, you'll get faster and you will become interested in other things and you might leave that book behind and go to something else. And those are okay as well, uh, where you, it's, it's okay to, to move on. But I would encourage you to, to maybe challenge yourself. And maybe it's not one of the commentaries. Maybe it's that devotional guide that Leslie got where you just say, okay, I'm going to spend 40 days in Isaiah. That's not a huge commitment. That's a little over a month. And you say, you know what, I'm going to do that. He actually has one of those for the Psalms. The Psalms is another really big book of the Bible, 150 chapters. And he does 40 days in the Psalms. And it's meant for someone like you to get it. And that's your quiet time. And and that counts as your quiet time. Like, that's, a, that's okay for that to be your, your quiet time uh, there. So that's a little bit of an extensive answer. I hope that helps. Say it again. Can you give me an example of a promise that you're thinking of in Isaiah? I mean, I have a little bit of a blanket answer, but maybe you're thinking of something in particular. Okay, yeah, so maybe... Uh, Well, so the church is the restored Israel, or at least that's what I believe and affirm. So what we see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the old covenant promises of God, and he has fulfilled all of that. Uh, all of that, all, Matthew tells us that he's fulfilled all of that, all of the ceremonial, all of the, the civil, all of the moral law has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. So on one level, we see that those promises are fulfilled in specifically the ones of deliverance. Uh, we see that those are fulfilled in, in ours in Christ. You know, you think of the book of Romans where Gentiles are grafted, grafted in. So when, when we think of promises, we, we really kind of have to balance it on a, on a couple levels. Promises of eschatological deliverance, 
promises of eschatological hope. By eschatological, I mean end-time deliverance, end-time hope. Those are true for the new covenant believer as we're grafted into those promises in the person of Christ, right? Uh, When we think of specific like temporal promises, land promises, and things like that, those have been fulfilled. We're no longer looking for those. We, We see something even greater promised to us, new heavens and new earth, all right, that's certainly true for, for the people of God in the Old Testament, but we see that Jesus comes and he, he fulfills that. And we have hints of those fulfillment kind of across the Old Testament. You see that in the book of Joshua. You see that in other places as well. Probably one of the most helpful ways to kind of think of that would be some of the chapters that we have at the Connection Center. So I'm speaking to our church members here right now. When we think of kind of theological systems that help us uh, kind of piece, piece the Bible together, uh, and what, what you see would happen with those promises is that we're going to have to look at them and how they're fulfilled in the person of Christ and then kind of lift them up in their epochal context. And what I mean by that is kind of in the time period they're, they're given and then relate them to us. So promises of deliverance, promises of salvation, those are ours. Those are, this is our story in Christ. And we, and we see that not only kind of uh, literally, but we see that metaphorically, the, the same thing that is spoken of of the people of Israel, that there are people who are wayward and have turned away. Uh, we see that now spoken of to, to all people. God commands all people everywhere to repent because all people ha- have been uh, wayward and have turned away. And he's provided a solitary way of salvation for them in the person of Christ. But you might have a specific promise in mind once again. So that's kind of like a, a broad macro hermeneutic. You know, and I, I would encourage you pick up some of those chapters. Jason Meyer's chapter on theological systems is really helpful. Uh, you know, uh, Gentry and Wellam's book, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. That's a really excellent book that'd be helpful uh, for you to piece some of that together. Does that kind of get to your question? So uh, maybe, maybe, maybe what I would do then is just kind of think about how we devotionally read Scripture. Uh, so what you might not know is that those are the two verses, actually those three, because I typically start in verse 8, are the verses that I quote to myself literally before I preach every sermon. I'm either reading those verses right before I walk up here, or I'm quoting them to myself while I'm standing right there each and every week, and reminding myself of what I know to be true in other places of Scripture. So I think that we can lift them out and and claim those promises. Uh, Certainly, there's a uniqueness in this section to how they're fulfilled in the servant. Uh, But because of the servant, we are grafted into God's family, and we are now God's people. Uh, So when it is possible for you to read this devotionally and look at these promises and be comforted by them because we look at them, we lift them up and as they are fulfilled in the person of Christ and see them fulfilled in this apocal context and then apply them to us. So are they true of you in context? No, he's speaking of the servant. But are they true of you because you are one of God's people in Christ? I think you could say yes and that you could claim that promise. Does that make sense? A little bit of a distinction. Ben or Joseph, would you say anything different? That's right, and you, you think of Matthew 28. Ben, would you say anything? Thank you. No,
Really helpful. Kathy? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So specifically, you're thinking of the, the train of his robe filling the temple and what he sees. Isaiah 6 is actually a very unique passage for the New Testament and the gospel. So in Mark chapter 4, verse 12, John chapter 12, again, this is where I write these all on the side of my Bible. Uh, John chapter 12, I don't read my Bible sideways down like this. Um, John chapter 12, verse 39, Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 uh, through uh, 15, Luke chapter 8, verse 10, Acts chapter two, 28, verses 26 through 27, and Romans chapter 11, verse 8. Those verses are all picked up and they're applied to the person of Christ. So when I look at Isaiah 6, what the biblical authors are doing specifically with that vision is they're, they're telling us that, that the one that he sees there would be the agent of the Father, and they apply them to Christ. Now, that glorious vision of new heavens, new earth, I think that that's the end of Isaiah, and that's picking up the themes of the book of Revelation, what, what you're referring to. So you think of kind of that picture in Isaiah 65, uh, for a really helpful treatment of that, Richard Mao has a really excellent book. It's incredibly readable. One of your favorite books you read in the internship? Other than the Bible. Uh, and so Richard Mao, it's called When the Kings Come Marching In. Uh, it's an excellent book, and he's trying to help us understand this messianic vision of new heavens and new earth. I don't agree with everything Mao says, but it is a really excellent, uh, excellent book. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's not, it's not meant to be a super overly technical book. Los? He's got a mic for you. You know... Uh, so chapter divisions are unique uh, that come much later. Uh, so that's about 16th, 17th century. So all your versification is something that we can debate about. Your chapter division and, and certainly all the subject headings that you have in your English Bibles are something you can debate about. I have no idea how they got to 66. Maybe they were thinking, hey, that's going to be pretty neat. You know, like if you have 66 chapters, 66 books of the Bible. Um, it's certainly not inspired uh, in, in that sense, which I think is what's helpful for us in, in Mater is only one uh, version of, of breaking down that outline. So if you go get other commentaries, either off my shelf or if you just go to Westminster or a place like that and pull them, maybe if you look at the ESV Study Bible, you're going to see people chopping up Isaiah in a lot of different ways, try, trying to understand it. Uh, all of those outlines are uh, to be useful for you, but not inspired. So coincidence, you know, I mean, you know, I don't really know how to answer that other than like certainly in the providence of God, that's what we have right now. Uh, but is it divinely inspired? No. Uh, and so that's why I think we take a step back, look at the mountain range and try to see how do I look at something that's intimidating and try to have an understanding. Because if, if I can understand a little bit of where the whole thing's going, then I can digest those more difficult chunks uh, at the base of the mountain, right? You know, all the condemnation about Moab and the Edomites and different places like that. Good question.
Oh, that's not me. That's Alec Matera. I wish that I could say that was mine. So yeah, all, all useful things, page 489. You know, I, so you know, all unhelpful things, those are mine inspired. Uh, you have other questions? Eddie, and I, I think, did you have one, Rachel? Okay. Oh. All right, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that Tim. Okay, wrong Tim. <laughs> Thank you, Mel. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, he, he certainly does that, and you see that here even in Mater, right? So I was particularly emphasizing one point, but Mater helps us see that those, uh, those ideas and concepts of judgment and salvation go together, right? Which Jim Hamilton published kind of a famous book title, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, right? So ju- judgment goes along with that. Where there is salvation, there is also, also a judgment. Judgment on God's people in the sense that even God's people will be examined and judged, but then eschatologically or ultimately all people who are not uh, identified with the Spirit-anointed Savior, who is also the servant of 38 through 55, will be judged, right? And if they don't align with the king of one, uh, chapters 1 through 37. Um, I was more wanting to try to hit kind of an emphasis on a different syllable and say, uh, when, when we think of uh, these promises of salvation, that they are ours, and that we understand specifically that it's because he's, and that's what was unique to me. I did not, I did not know this prior to this study, I would have probably only focused on chapters 40 through 55. I would not have focused on chapters 38 through 39. And I definitely would not have included 56 through 66. And it helped me see that it is because he is the spirit anointed one that this work of redemption can be applied to us salvifically. Uh, and, and that's really important for even the, the way that the gospels portray Jesus where the spirit descends on him. And then Luke in particular really wants us to see that Jesus goes out in the power of the Spirit and that he's doing his ministry in the power of the Spirit and in one sense, enacting for us what it means to live the Spirit-filled life uh, as, as the Christ. So judgment's also there, and I probably could have developed those themes a little bit better, but Mater definitely sees them in there. Well, uh, are you thinking Isaiah in particular? Are you thinking the Gospels and kind of how that works in his life? Or are you thinking ultimately salvifically? Uh-huh. Yeah, so... Yeah, so ultimately, I think Revelation picks that up later. So there's uh, this already not yet tension, probably a phrase many of us are familiar with, where kind of all of these things are kind of like partially fulfilled and then will be ultimately fulfilled when it's consummated, right? So, so sin is judged on the cross. Ultimately, it will be finally judged, and Revelation gives us a beautiful picture of that, right, when Christ, Christ returns. Salvation is accomplished, and we are in the kingdom now, 
and yet we are fully awaiting, awaiting the full arrival of that kingdom when the new heavens and the new earth come down, right? Uh, so we, we are inheritors of those promises. So you even think of the way that Paul speaks of the people. Now we are saints, but we don't always live saintly lives. So we are positionally holy saints, and we are progressively being made holy, and then we will be perfected in holiness when he returns. Uh, so this idea of judgment, I think that there's a sense in which it is judged in the person of Christ. Sin is judged, uh, but judgment of all evil do- doers finally and ultimately it seems that the Bible reserves that for the end of the age when Christ, Christ returns. And, he, you know, and even that, that image that the book of Hebrews picks up, he's a consuming fire, right? It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of, a, of, a, of the living God, right? Yep. Yeah, these are good questions. I thought somebody might go there. <laughs> Yeah, so in particular, you're thinking of verses 1 through 16, right? Yeah, so I, I think one of the unique things about that passage in particular, so I, I think that there is a judgment. Jesus is assessing and he is judging. But when we think of ultimate judgment, right, uh, the Gospels in one sense, uh, they, they leave us dissatisfied or maybe it stops short of what we would expect, right? Like not all of the Pharisees were kind of terminated, yeah, you know, if you want to think of it in that sense, or all all people who reject the Christ, uh, ultimately that's going to happen at the end of the age. In that same section, there's something that's unique in Isaiah 65 verse 10. Maybe I'll help you. Maybe I won't. Uh, tell me. Um, there, there's also in the midst of this judgment, there is this reversal imagery where these places of judgment actually become places of hope. Uh, maybe you're familiar that the Valley of Accor is famously mentioned in the Achan situation, uh, where Achan breaks faith. And so I, I'm, I'm looking at Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 16, and perhaps I'm wrong, uh, and maybe I need to give a little more thought to this, but it seems to me one of, one of the themes here uh, is the, those judgment sites are reversed and become places of hope for the people, uh, which is, is, again, kind of teeing us up for later in Isaiah 65, which is kind of not what we expect with the cross. The cross is, is an instrument of torture and judgment, but it becomes the place of hope. Right, and you think of the very famous Michael Card song that actually picks up on that same type of imagery that John uses in John chapter three that comes from the book of Numbers where the people disobey God. He sends the fiery serpents and then they are to look at one of the serpents raised upon a pole. The place of judgment becomes hope. So, so I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question as much as I'm saying it seems to me there's certainly a sense in which judgment is taking place in Jesus' ministry. He's looking out, he's assessing and sin is judged uh, in, the, in the person of Christ. He bears our wrath. But also that those places of judgment become places of hope or become a place of hope in particular, the valley of Accor, a place for herds to lie down and for my people who have sought me. Uh, there's this reversal imagery because that's not what took place before at these same types of judgment sites. Uh, and it's only mentioned two other times. It's mentioned uh, in Joshua chapter six, no, Joshua chapter seven, and then in somewhere in, uh, later in like Deuteronomy, uh, the Valley of Court, I had to go up and find, find the exact reference for us. Maybe it says it in the subject heading here. Yeah, oh, Hosea, Hosea chapter two. Hosea chapter two. 
beat you. So, um, yeah, so I don't know if I'm exactly answering it. I, I think I'm, I'm thinking more of the reversal imagery, and maybe I just need to give a little more time to your question and thoughts. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, thanks. A little bit, thanks. I'll take a little bit. All right. Tim, huh? That was it? All right, we'll take yours, and we'll take Matthew, and then we're done. Yes. It better be good. Don't disappoint. Yeah, so I think what he's trying to do with kind of the theological structure of, of the text here, so what you're saying textually I think is exactly right. Mater's point is to emphasize that especially 39, uh, where you kind of come out of this proclamation of judgment and then immediately into this uh, declaration of comfort, right? That's not what we expect as readers, like judgment and then they all went to hell. Like that's kind of what we expect. And like judgment and like comfort, comfort my people. He's trying to take and say, okay, it is specifically these events that are wrapped up with Hezekiah's life. His life is extended, and as a result of that extension, not only is an heir born to him where the Davidic line continues, so if his life isn't extended, we actually all do go to hell because the Davidic line ceases. That's really important, so the fulfillment or a continuation of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But also, because his life's extended, the Babylonians are able to hear that he has gotten better, and then they come and visit him. And so what I think Mater is doing is trying to take a step back and just say, all right, Hezekiah's life as a whole maybe becomes a little bit of a, a turning point that then leads us into not only the, the continuation of some covenantal promises, but actually to a really dark and bad place in the book of Isaiah, which actually then tees us up very high to receive these wonderful words of comfort, right? So we should get to the end of 39, a little bit like in your gospel presentation, and you start out with something like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin and death is death. And like, you know, at that point in your gospel presentation, people were like, man, this is really, really bad. And then you bring the good news to them. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's kind of, you know, how Isaiah 40 should land on us as a result of that. And I think Matera is wanting to pull those together. Whether he's right or not, we can debate that. And, you know, certainly I th- I'd probably be in agreement with you. 39 ties a little more tightly.